Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are still just a little bit embarrassed about having a Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison and still haven't quite learned how to go through an intro without tripping over ourselves. <laughs> I thought I did fine. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was kind of like you're walking down the sidewalk and there's a root growing up under one of the panels of concrete that raised the the lip in between panels and your your foot caught it but you didn't face plant well you're gonna sound real foolish ben when i re-record that intro perfectly (laughs) and then then you sound like a super dumbass by criticizing something perfect well a double super dumbass to you adam (laughs) i uh, occasionally will uh will indulge in re-recording myself saying something if i feel like i didn't deliver it properly Ben, I've never done that. Are you kidding? Yeah, I've never done it. Wow. Is it, uh, do you feel that it's like sacrosanct or? I mean, I wouldn't use that word. I think, I think there's an element of fairness to it that I don't want, like, it's not that we are in competition. Yeah. But I would never want to give myself an unfair edge. <laughs> like, we both edit every other show. I think everyone knows that. Yeah. But, but. In that edit, actually, I, I, I think, think most people at this point are under the misunderstanding that Rob's 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 edits this show, which is not yeah. true. No, we love Rob's, but he doesn't edit this show. It's true. Uh, we're glad to take the credit for how great this show is produced. <laughs> <laughs> One of the few things that we can take the credit for. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, when we edit the show, I think we are both uh, interested in in making the both of us sound great. There's something. I'm resistant to about putting in that kind of effort to only benefit me to, oh. the, to the degree that I, I haven't done it yet. I would say that the times that I've done it, it's been because I was cutting like a big chunk out and I needed some connective tissue from one idea to another. Uh, to your credit, I have never been able to, to detect that. And we <laughs> QA our shows relentlessly. I may be feeling more at peace than I have in a while. I just had hundreds of needles put into me and then removed from my body oh. uh, like a half an hour ago. So wow. Would you say it that's... was a religious experience, Adam? <laughs> I would not. <laughs> well, would you like to have one? It's good to see you all in church. It's called the Bible. That's the way God wants it. I don't know why, dude. All these questions? Is a little blind faith too much to ask? I mean, I do have this Bible here, right on my desk. Why I don't did... we? Why don't we turn to a page? Let's do it. Uh, ben, I think I think I'm content to just like flip to a random page. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. Let's see what that tells us. I think that the Bible. We we haven't done this a, a lot because I think the Bi- the show Bible for TNG is full of like bite-sized chunks of information, and the DS9 show Bible is more just like pages and pages of text, right? I think I'm mi- I'm mildly unconvinced that this Bible is the true Bible yeah. for the show. And I think it may be because of what you said. Like, I would expect a show Bible to be more than 20 pages. It seems not to have been organized in any way. 
Yeah. Then I've turned to page 18 in what has to be the official Star Trek DS9 show bible. <laughs> For educational script reading purposes only, with no rights implied or given. Uh, this is the edition made 12 June 1992. So begins the reading about <laughs> Nog. One of the other Ferengi who works for Quark has a teenage son who will become friends with the commander's son. Nog is Peck's bad boy. <laughs> the kind of kid our parents didn't want us to associate with. What is this drivel? Who the hell is Peck? Peck's bad boy. Henry Peck, popularly known as Peck's bad boy, is a fictional character created by George Wilbur Peck. First appearing in 1883 novel Peck's Bad Boy and His Pa, the bad boy has appeared in numerous print, stage, and film adaptations. The character is portrayed as a mischievous prankster, and the phrase Peck's Bad Boy has entered the language to refer to anyone whose mischievous or bad behavior leads to annoyance or embarrassment. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I realize the, the, the novelty in saying that, well criticizing something read from the show bible but give me a fucking break <laughs> i mean you and i are pretty well-read learned people have you heard of peck's bad boy as a like as a shorthand it's a new one on me apparently there was a f a 1921 film called peck's bad boy hmm. oh and remade in 1934 it was like the uh spider-man of its time just constantly remaking it so there was like a a weird emo sexy version of of Peck's bad boy <laughs> that like had his his hair combed down into his face. Yeah, they made they made five terrible Peck's bad boy films and then somehow one good PlayStation 4 game based on Peck's bad boy. I wish I had that many chances to boot and then reboot. Yeah. An expensive idea. Yeah. Most people only get one boot, right? Peck's Bad Boy is a license to print money, though, Adam. <laughs> That's why they won't sell the rights back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty terrible. It might be the worst Bible study we've ever done. I mean, speaking of, of Herculean editing tasks, <laughs> turning that into whatever our, our dear viewers end up receiving... Yeah. Gonna, uh, I mean, they're going to love it. They're not going to know how much work this took. They're not going to know how utterly confounding that seemed. So ends the bad boy, Ben. Peck be with you. Uh, and also with you, Adam. <laughs> well, what do you say we uh, we wrap up Bible study, this the worst example thereof, and uh, turn to the episode we came here to review today. It's season three, episode 15, Density. <laughs> How incredible this is? <laughs> no, of course you don't. Kind of a neat idea for what's going to happen in this episode. It's important to be able to communicate to the other side of the wormhole. Yeah. How are they going to make that happen? Yeah. And uh, and it's also important to start doing PC things with the Cardassians now that all the treaties are in place. The Federation has a Cardassian peace treaty and now the Bajorans do. And, uh, and they're going to collaborate on uh, turning the wormhole into something that you can transmit information through. It seems like that would be pretty critical to ever doing missions on the other side of the wormhole. I'm surprised that they haven't done this mission already. 
Like, how long have they known about the wormhole in Showtime? Three years? What is to stop the Jem'Hadar from just destroying relay after relay on the other <laughs> side of this thing? They should cloak the relay is what they should do. Oh, yeah. They got to go get another Romulan cloaking device. Wait, but if it's it's cloaked, can it send or receive? <laughs> See, it's a huge problem that you're asked to ignore. I mean, it makes me think that the Dominion is a lot weaker than they flex to be because they said like don't ever come back to this side of the wormhole and then they basically disappeared right like they haven't actually been enforcing that proclamation yeah all they seem to be interested in at this point is having the founders fuck with odo (laughs) like as an experiment and and only when he like heads over there you know only when he's like close by right yeah part of the the diplomatic exchange program thing happening here is that uh the cardassians are sharing scientists yeah it's a brand new thing they're sending a couple of scientists to the station and like the opening scene is cisco and odo talking about what security measures will be in place for having cardassians around but also kind of the the long view that cisco is taking on this saying like i want it i want to sort of normalize Cardassians being around here in a way that, you know, people get used to. I want the Cardassians to feel like guests, not prisoners. I thought this was a weird scene because it's sort of engaged in a fairly vicious act of Garrick erasure. <laughs> right. <laughs> he has a business there. That guy's always around the promenade. Garrick has saved both of their lives a couple of times. Yeah. I don't understand it. He's uh, as close to being a main cast character as you can get without being one. And uh, the idea of him being a toehold or some, you know, having built a lot of goodwill so far or potentially being a problem for this, you know, none of that is discussed. I miss Garrick. Yeah. He's a great Garrickter. (laughs) (laughs) He's one of the best. Why did you say that? What I want to know is why you said that. (laughs) Because that, right now, is the best part of the show. (laughs) Is this the worst episode we've ever done? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Wow. That's what I'm saying. Shit. It's only getting better from here, right? I guess we could try to claw our way back to funny. (laughs) That's what we do. Yeah. We're digging ourselves a hole. Now we got to get out of it. We got to, uh, we got to make little impressions in the mud and fill it with rocks and then melt those rocks with our phaser so they become spikes and then use those spikes to climb out of the hole we're we're in the bottom of. Bullshit, man. Way to use a Star Trek specific (laughs) metaphor for this. Well done. It's the only thing I can think of when somebody talks about digging themselves out of a hole. Cisco's nervous like someone who's preparing for a house guest. Yeah. He wants to make sure they're comfortable. And Quark is also preparing for these house guests in his own special way, which is to break out the good wine, right? Yeah. Like, not the wine that you drink on a weeknight, but the good stuff. I have a bottle of Canar for each of them. It's like when you get to gold status with your Starwood account, you know, they come bring a bottle of wine by your your room. Is that a thing that they do? Yeah. Oh. 
Yeah. Maybe someday that'll happen to me. I actually recently found out that uh, that I would have on our most recent tour leg, except for you put your Starwood number on my room and not <laughs> mine. So, so you earned two nights on my back, buddy. As Uxbridge Shimoda travel agent, I guess that's <laughs> that's what I get to do. That's Privilege, one of the advantages. Priv- oh, f- oh, what a what a terrible mistake. Oh well, <laughs> always bank error in Adam's favor. Oh, I fell over into all these extra points. Oh, I fell over again. <laughs> I'm just walking into status rakes. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, I hope you enjoy the, all those points, Adam. But uh, but Cork is trafficking in in Kinar that he's had in his storeroom since the occupation, and uh, and and Dax does something that I think is a little bit mm. insane, which is she just opens one of the bottles. Like that's not your bottle of wine to open, Dax. I kind of like this version of her. As the eight generations of Dax, like, what yeah. the fuck does she care? Of course right. she's going to, like, she'll open up a bottle in front of it, everyone. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen to her? Yeah, it's that old person that doesn't give any fucks anymore. Yeah. 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 And I don't think they do that enough with yeah. her. I think she could be a constant chaos agent for that reason. That would be that would be such an amazing thing to see her character start to do more of. I kind of yeah. think this is a moment of that. But what she discovers when she opens this bottle is that uh, is that the canar is corked. This canar has gone bad. What? And uh, it would not be a nice present to give some honored guests after all. Ben, when I uh, graduated college. I learned that my parents had squirreled away a nice bottle of champagne uh-huh. for the occasion. Oh. My parents, my parents do not, uh, as a rule, like I've, I had never seen them drink champagne before this moment. And so it wasn't a party. It was just the four of us. And so they dusted off this old bottle. They opened it up, yeah. poured it into some glasses, and it was brown. Oh. It was very, very brown. Whoa. And I had never seen a corked bottle of champagne before or since. Yeah. I don't know if I would have guessed that that was possible with champagne. I don't know what happened to this bottle. I know that they had had it for many, many years. Yeah. So Quark is there basically because he sees the uh, the profit potential of a greater and better relationship with the Cardassians. That is basically it. Yeah, you know, he's seeing, like, it's not growing his wedge of the pie, it's growing the pie. Like, if there's more people coming to the station, he can make more money. He's got big plans. Too bad he's sitting on ten cases of bad canar. Yeah, that's something that is going to be hard to profit from. I think the lesson here, the lesson from my story, the lesson from Quark, is, like, if you've got something nice, like a bottle of wine, don't wait on that too long. Yeah. Nice things are meant to be used and enjoyed. Yes. Don't wait until they spoil. Yeah, just got to get into it. Golden cut. The cut. Golden cut. So. Well, Adam, uh, the next scene is Cisco hanging in his office and uh, taking a visit from Vedic Yarka. He says it's urgent. And this is something that I think we've all probably suspected, but never actually seen any evidence of, which is that the prophets actually made prophecies. Talk about prophets a lot on on this show, but prophecies almost never. Yeah, I feel the same way. And like for as mystical as the Vedics and the Kais have been, 
I feel like few of them have really copped to the idea of of fortune telling. Yeah, that plays an interesting role in this. Like there's, you know, the prophets exist out of time, so they can show you glimpses of things that happen deep in the future. And there's this 3,000-year-old prophecy. Trick horse third, when you first encountered the orb of change. I'm afraid I don't know it. This Vedic has interpreted to mean that these Cardassian scientists that are on their way are actually harbingers of the destruction of the wormhole. Mm. Couldn't get this guy's face out of my head. He seems like a real that guy, you know? Yeah, he is. This is Eric Avari. He's been in a bunch of things. A handful of movies like Stargate and The Mummy. Yeah. Unfortunately, where I remember him most is Mr. Deeds. (laughs) Did a little time on uh, Babylon 5. Hey, whether you're watching Babylon 5 or acting in it, I think you call it the same thing. Doing time. That's my position on the subject. Yeah. Well, he was such a big fan of Bruce Boxleitner that he (laughs) really wanted to get a a chance to work across from the great one. You mean the great Burt Badnighter. (laughs) Oh, I think you're, you might be referring to Brent Bunt Muncher. (laughs) (laughs) I am indeed, Ben. The very same. (laughs) You know, the thing about this guy's face, besides being familiar, is it seems uniquely able to share a scary prophecy with someone. Like, he just has a face for religion. He really does. Yeah. Resting prophecy face. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's him. Uh, This is, uh, this puts Cisco in a tough spot because, you know, he's staying there with this Fedek and Major Kira staring at him and they're like, well, there it is, the religious truth of the matter. And he's like, uh, yeah, but I have orders, guys. Yeah. And this is going to be a conflict that plays out throughout the episode. The idea of Cisco's inherent emissariness and his resistance to that. Yeah. Right, like there's nothing he can do to not be the emissary in everybody's eyes, but he doesn't necessarily buy any of it, and, uh, you know, he's trying to be respectful. But I have no intention of calling this project off. It's easier to be respectful of someone's religion when their religion isn't, like, predicting certain doom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's, you know, something that most of the time they're fairly compatible, right? Like he can he can be the commander of the station and also a religious figure mm-hmm. at the same time, but uh, this is like one of those moments where his orders are in defiance of what all the religious people want his orders to be. You don't get a lot of this either. It seems like Cisco would have a really hard time walking the promenade unfucked with by the large Bajoran population there for this reason. It seems like this would be happening every time. Yeah, I and and they talk about like this guy is going to stay with his followers and and kind of make trouble because the because of what they believe. So Cisco humors him. You know, pro- protest all you want, but uh, we're going to see this thing through. And then after he leaves, does that thing where he's like, okay, well, that happened. Why don't we stick a couple of security people on him? I don't want them making any trouble while the Cardassians are here. We get like a little breakdown of what the prediction is. There's going to be three snakes. They're going to like go to the wormhole and open it up and burn it down. And And so like the concern is that the 
celestial temple, as the Bajorans style it, will be destroyed. Yeah, all they need to do is keep the snakes out. Seems pretty easy. Yeah, it's one of those episodes where the the goal is to prevent, you know, stakes from happening, you know? <laughs> so they go down to, uh, to meet these Cardassian scientists. One of the first things that they... They tell the Vedic is like, hey, like there's actually only two Cardassian scientists coming, so you you can rest easy. And he's like, no, there there will be a third coming along. Don't worry. <laughs> and so they uh, they head down. Sure enough, two ladies walk off of the transport. I'm Doctor Ulani Belor, Galora Rajal. I feel like the uh, female Cardassians have had like a muted blue on their uh, on their forehead spoon. Previously, these two ladies have a really vivid popping blue color up there. Yeah, it's very arresting, isn't it? Do you think that that's like a genetic difference between females and males on Cardassia, or do you think that's makeup? I kind of think it's Maybelline, Ben. (laughs) I wasn't looking at Galora's spoon because I was too distracted by her high top fade. Yeah. I feel like most Cardassians wear their hair in a fairly tightly knotted arrangement if you're female. Yeah. And Galora's got an updo that really goes up. Yeah, and she's got one of those headbands that girls in the 80s would wear where it just like sits over top of your head. And if you wanted to have like a, a bump, you could like put it on and then shift it forward two inches to give a little bump, but instead of going over top of her head, she's like put it onto the back of her of her high top fade to like cinch it in the middle. Yeah. It is a really wild look. Thank you, Commander. You know what? She's on a work trip. That's probably the safest place to try out a new look. Right. You know, around people that, that you aren't familiar with. Low stakes. And it's a really fun meeting of professionals here too because they start really stiff and nervous and... And, and they end up dropping those formalities really fast and kind of copping to the nervous tension of the situation in a really fun way. I liked it. And the nervous tension is established both in the performances, but also in the writing, like yeah. the way Cisco introduces himself, but and they like kind of jump on introducing themselves before he can introduce Kira. Mm-hmm. So you're like, is he going to introduce Kira or is that like already, is that ship sailed? Like, what are we going to do about the fact that Kira has not been introduced yet? That's like next level dialogue writing when you start writing interruptions yeah. and that kind of patter into your dialogue. It's good. I thought it was fun. It also does the thing where it it makes another case that uh, scientists are only good at science and aren't very good at anything else. And that's a vibe that kind of permeates a lot of characters in Star Trek. It reminded me a little bit of that episode where Dr. Crusher took a bunk bed into the sun. Mm -hmm. You know, they're working with the Ferengi scientist and the Klingon scientist. And, and, you know, you're getting to see members of societies that we have like basically one association with that do other things. Yeah, like there's the culture of alien races, but then there's the the culture of scientist. Yeah. That seems to supersede alien culture. Yeah, and they, as a way of being. And they can like not be in uniform, like like all of that stuff is really fun to see. Yeah, these ladies seem pretty cool. I'm sure everything's going to go fine for them. So we have a McLaughlin group. Issue one. Where they are talking over, you know, they're, they're basically setting up a mesh Wi-Fi 
that uh, will cover, you know, have coverage not just in the Alpha Quadrant, but also in the Gamma Quadrant. The bedroom being what I call the Gamma Quadrant. <laughs> yeah, so far away from the router, 70 million light years away from the router or whatever. <laughs> All of the putting down of the swords that happen upon their arrival uh, has sort of gone away because there's a kind of professional vanity at work here during this meeting between the Cardassian women and O'Brien. I am Chief Miles Edward O'Brien. This is fucking spectacular. Who is pretty defensive about some of the improvements that he's made to the station that they don't seem to understand. Well, I can figure those coils myself. The variance was less than 0.01%. Which, as you saw, was unacceptably high. When one of the scientists slips up and refers to the station as Terak Noor, like it cuts back to O'Brien's face and he gets like real angry about that. It's like a holiday dinner where uh, someone refers to the dad's new wife as mom instead mm-hmm. of... <laughs> yeah. Like it's that kind of awkwardness. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, Dejar is coming. There's a third scientist that needs to make an appearance, Ben. Yeah. The third snake, right? They kind of drop this in as they as they walk out of the room, and Cisco is like, uh, "Well, cool, good meeting, everybody, enjoy." And uh, Kira is just like sitting there at the end of the table, stunned. Another colleague of ours, Dejar, will be arriving later today. Just like in the prophecy, Cisco could have rolled his eyes here, right, and been just fine. Like, like you don't lose any respect for Cisco if he does. Yeah. yeah. I think his his appetite for, for like, humoring Kira about this is a problem in this episode. Yeah. He doesn't want to upset her, her deeply held convictions or make that a point of contention in their professional relationship. Even though she's the one that's actively doing that. Right. Like, debating the religious is always a little bit tricky because... There's an element of what they believe about something that is not couched in measurable truth about the world. Right. So it's not even a place that he can debate her. So he just has to, like, Cisco eyes to commercial. (laughs) God, I wish I could do that in real life. (laughs) Just get out of any debate. I see you trying, Adam. I see you trying all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always looking for that camera. Yeah. Is this my angle? Never been able to find it. We come back and uh, Cisco is in Odo's office learning a little bit more about our buddy Vedic Yarka. It turns out that Vedic Yarka is no longer Vedic at all. He was stripped of his title two months ago. He reps Vedic, but he's like part of a, a splinter group of the Bajoran religion. He was so against the peace treaty that they were like, actually, that's a little much, Yarka. We're going to defrock you. He was wearing that frock that said property of Vedic assembly, you know, yeah. in the like big, you know, slab serif uh, font <laughs> of every athletic department. It kind of informs every decision this guy makes. And it turns his presence on the station into the Hail Mary to scuttle the peace process again that it seems to be. Yeah, I wish he had a bigger role in the episode because he kind of disappears for very long stretches. Well, what he's effective at is like disrupting the thinking 
that Cisco's had about things from the start. Like he kind of throws the smoke bomb into the room between he and Kira. Yeah. And it creates a tension between them that runs throughout. Yeah. And Odo is kind of calling Cisco on that in this scene. All humanoids have an agenda of some sort and that their agendas can influence them without their even realizing it. Cisco has convinced himself that he's just doing his job and seeing things through as he's supposed to. And Odo's like, no, man, like, don't act like you're not ultimately kind of serving yourself in this whole project. Uh, you know, you want to see the, the peace treaty be successful and you want to like, you want to do all the things you want to do and, and acting like that's not to some extent influencing the way you're making your decisions is, uh, is disingenuous. This is not a good Cisco episode. And I don't mean that in the sense that Cisco is a bad character in it. What I mean is that Cisco didn't ask. Right. Odo flips a chair around Adam and starts telling Cisco what he thinks. <laughs> yeah. And this is right on the heels S- straight of Straight talk from Odo. Yeah, and this is right on the heels of Kira unsolicitedly telling Cisco about how the religious prophecy that Yarka has spit is going to influence the decisions that he needs to make for the rest of the episode. Again, Cisco didn't ask. And this is the sort of shit that you wouldn't be able to pull on Picard. Yeah. Yeah. I think think... they should respect him more. And I understand why these scenes are here to help forward a story, but this isn't a good look for Cisco. Yeah. But also like, like his fallibility makes him kind of interesting as a character. I think Picard's infallibility makes him interesting as a character too, but this might be a symptom of them trying to write for a captain who is not Picard. I can't remember the last time someone asked for permission to speak freely to Ben Sisko, and I'm yeah. kind of, it's kind of turning into a problem. Like, it's not that I want to fear Sisko's recrimination about being talked to socially. Yeah. It's that I think there's a baseline level of, res- of respect that he should have that seems a little low for a commanding officer. Right. So, surprise, surprise, O'Brien has uh, gone out to a group dinner with the scientists from Cardassia and Dax. They don't expect me to show up for these formal dinners. And they're sitting around, and Dax and the science ladies are having a pretty nice conversation. (laughs) O'Brien's a little bit, uh, you know, like arms crossed, just kind of like staring at his plate. I love how this is blocked because his seat isn't even at the table. Like, he's yeah. clearly... like he's shoved it way back. <laughs> yeah. Basically, every time I've ever gone to a group dinner, how I wind up looking by the end of the thing. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely resemble this also. And then on the drive home, my wife was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm like, what? What? She's like, you can't conceal anything about what you're feeling. You make everybody feel terrible. That's a fun way to be. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> this is when uh, your girl Dejar shows up. We weren't expecting you so soon. She is the third Viper from Cardassia. She's kind of the strong, silent type initially. When when she arrives, she uh, doesn't doesn't really speak unless spoken to, and and just does a lot of kind of mean mugging and nodding. She kind of has the Gowron eyes of the three. <laughs> she's got a really intense resting look. Yeah. She's really pretty. Like, she's got these giant window eyes Yeah, that, that distinguishes her from the rest of them. Yeah, I feel like that's partly a, a uh, civilian 
cosplay thing. Yeah. Because, uh, cause like, Galora and Ulani are also, like, you know, fairly lovely, and mm-hmm. that's not something that we've seen done with female Cardassians before. They've they've tended to style them in a in a way that is very severe. And I don't think that that's what they went for here. And that's yeah. and that's kind of uh, an interesting tweak. Like I didn't I didn't even think loveliness was possible with this makeup. There's a fun conflict between them because Galora and Ulani seem like the type of scientists that take a lot of business trips and kind of relish in the life of being on the road and yeah. meeting different people and working scientist to scientist and like eating strange food, for example. And Dejar is more the kind that would uh, book a hotel room for their friend, but then take all the Starwood points for themselves. <laughs> we talked about this a few times before on this show, but how food acts as a shorthand for either cultural exchange or cultural difference like it really speeds the knowledge of someone's relationship to someone else and you can tell right away that the two scientists we met at the beginning are very different from this new one because of their feelings on food this like quark puts out a snack tray yeah of culturally relevant crudite for the Cardassians. I don't really care for Cardassian cuisine. They want to be eating as if they're they're members of the culture they're visiting. I don't quite buy that. I think what, like the truth of what they're trying to say is, I don't like it when somebody else makes my home cuisine. Yeah. Because I don't like my home cuisine as an, ins- I've never heard anybody say that. Like, of all the countries I've ever visited, you know, like I've never, yeah. I never met somebody from Japan that was like, Japanese food sucks. I like Chinese food, you know? God, that's such a fucking great punch up. And I wish it was put that way. Like how much more interesting would it be if Ulani and Galora were like, you know, if that thing happens all the time where you get your home food in some other world and it's just, it, it's it, not great. There's it's something the wrong about it. Yeah. Like yeah. when I was in Ethiopia a couple of years ago, I, at some point, somebody put a plate of food in front of me and it was a burger and french fries. Right. And it was like somebody had seen a picture of a burger and french fries but had never tasted it. Yeah. And it was just like there were so many things that were weird and bad about it. Like the <laughs> the bun and patty were like two inches bigger in diameter than any burger I'd ever seen. They were like undersalted. There weird. was a bone? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It, was every, it, it just tasted weird and wrong, you know? Yeah. You know, like in describing that, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a more difficult thing to pull off. Right. To be quite honest about it, I was in a pale. A bucket. A pale. Mr. Bucket, I have to revert back to my living state. Oh, I don't use the bucket anymore. Galora and O'Brien, like, they've got to rewire a bunch of shit on Deep Space Nine to get uh, the receiver ready because... The Defiant is heading into the wormhole to set up the transponder. And uh, the stuff on, on Deep Space Nine is far from figured out because the Cardassians came under the assumption that they would find a Terraknor that had been totally unretrofitted and unmodified from the way they left it, which uh, does not turn out to have been true. But they figure, like, why don't we, why don't we head out there and set up the relay anyways? One of the things I noticed in this bridge scene, Adam, is that Cisco has a uh, a thermos tucked <laughs> into the side of his uh, captain's chair. <laughs> did, you, did you see that? I didn't. Uh, give me the time code on that. Uh, you get you get a pretty good shot of it if you go to twenty minutes and fifty four seconds. 
Do you think that's Avery Brooks's uh, personal thermos? I don't know, because like it's definitely a thermos and not like a design element of the chair, because you get to see it swivel. Like when Kira and and Ulani come in, like you see the other side of the chair, and there isn't a thermos on that side. So Cisco probably wants some soup to have <laughs> during this mission. Let's have soup for lunch. Mm, good. That's the thing about having an item like this on your set is that you have to be aware of thermos continuity throughout. <laughs> what kind of soup do you think he has? Jambalaya? How'd you know? I would, uh, I would be making friends with Commander Sisko pretty quickly if I worked on this bridge. I would be making literal runs with <laughs> Commander Sisko if what I was eating was gumbo on the bridge. <laughs> There's a fun scene back on DS9 of O'Brien and Galora arguing about all of this changes that O'Brien has made to the station. And it's, it's a fun Star Trek conversation because it kind of teases the idea of the multiple backup systems that Starfleet has for every single fucking thing. In a crunch, I wouldn't like to be caught without a second backup. Like, coincidentally, they're having this conversation at the station that has a history of electrocuting people, like that little bunker side station at Ops. Yeah. Like, sort of a terrible history there. One of the most electrocuty places. <laughs> yeah. She also, at one point, can't explain all of the, like, engineering decisions she's she's made to him because she doesn't have time. And he's like, oh, you're being racist against humans. I see how it is. And she's like, no, 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 no. Men just don't seem to have a head for this sort of thing. That's why women dominate the sciences. What happened to all of O'Brien's anti-Cardi sensibility? I don't get a whiff of that. I don't either. I think... Uh, it's either that he's doing a great job of suppressing that while he works, or they forgot, <laughs> forgot in the script. You know who isn't suppressing her true beliefs uh, is Kira on the Bridge of the Defiant, who, upon the appearance of a, of a comet, mentions uh, how prophetic it is. The sort of stars. A lot of the parts of this prophecy seem to have come true so far. And uh, Cisco pulls her aside and gives her a little bit of talking to, which I think is the commander thing to do in this moment. You got to keep that shit in your quarters, Kira. Right. It's interesting. Like, it's that kind of thing where the second they're told of the prophecy, they're kind of looking for things that fit within it the entire time. Yeah, it's like confirmation bias. This episode is a lot about Kira's deeply held beliefs and, like, one of the things that they talk about together is the fact that Kira is the first officer of Deep Space Nine, but also in her private life believes in Ben Sisko as the emissary of the prophets. Yeah, kind of puts Sisko in an awkward position. As awkward as sitting on the lower bunk of a bunk bed with a partition that is like a foot tall. <laughs> you look at Cisco sitting on the lower bunk and nothing looks more uncomfortable than that position. Yeah. Yeah, weird blocking. How could blocking. that not be a real headbanger? Yeah. I like how they block this scene because they do a lot of that take the wall out of the set and put the camera there instead. Yeah. Kind of shot reverse shotting. And I haven't noticed them do that in this bunk bed playset before. I like it. It's interesting because I've read that the reason they came up with having the Defiant as a thing for, for this show was that they felt like they didn't have enough room to to have good scenes sometimes mm -hmm. on like in like the bridge of a runabout and they wanted to have that but the Defiant still feels very cramped compared to you yeah. know the 
the Enterprise or whatever. I mentioned Cisco putting himself in a position to bang his head by sitting on that lower bunk, but like when you see a character folded over like that in a scene, you're telling that visual story about the space that they're in. Well, they fired up this transmitter thingy. But uh, the wormhole opens up and and shit starts to shake. Like the Defiant's getting bangers dropped on it. They're not receiving telemetry from Deep Space Nine. It's going really bad. So they shut it down. But in the process of running that, it created a gravity well around the wormhole. And the comet that they observed earlier is now is now headed for the wormhole. In a, and uh, it's made of a substance that will cause the wormhole to explode if uh, if it goes in. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff. We've uh, we've started a countdown, Ben. Yeah. It's one of I, the best things for conflict and tension. Finally, there's some conflict and tension in this episode. Yeah. They head back home, and they have a, a second McLaughlin group, Adam. Issue two. <laughs> I love that they go back to DS9 to have this conversation. Yeah. Like, why? <laughs> I guess so O'Brien and Galora can be involved. I guess, yeah. So they come up with the plan. They're going to modify the weapons on the Defiant to go shoot this comet. Even though O'Brien's a man, he has the best (laughs) idea at the table. And what's great is that his idea will take exactly as much time as they have. Really blowing these Cardassians' minds. (laughs) Uh, But another strange thing is that... uh, Galora is the one that is tasked to help him make the modifications to the weapons. And it, I'm like, wasn't the first scene in this episode about how we can't trust these Cardassians and now you're showing one the weapon systems on the most fearsome ship in the Federation fleet? Like, why are we doing this? Yeah, like, could we take the eye roll that O'Brien had in the restaurant and, and kind of move it up to this scene? Because... <laughs> If ever an eye roll was necessary, it's here. Yeah, because uh, from her body language, uh, it becomes apparent that Galora has maybe some professional disdain for O'Brien, but some personal lust for him. Yeah, she's thirsty for O'Brien, isn't she? I assure you, I'm quite fertile. Here's the thing, Ben. She confuses his overt irritability as a sign that he's into her. Yeah. Why can't my overt irritability (laughs) ever attract anybody to you yeah be confused as love that would be perfect for me yeah me too buddy it'd really stop a lot of uh, arguments before they start yeah oh he's very irritable he must be tremendously attracted to me (laughs) (laughs) uh that's great yeah uh Ben, you and you and I are going to end up being 70-year-old spinster men sharing a duplex apartment. Yeah, when our far more successful and emotionally mature wives realize what bozos we are and how much better they could do. <laughs> when they run out of patience. Yeah. We'll, we'll, just, <laughs> we'll be stuck uh, with each other. We'll just get like a we'll get like a basement apartment in Centralia, Oregon and <laughs> live out the rest of our days making Star Trek podcasts together. If you think Adam and Ben have been fighting before, <laughs> buckle up. Every Marin open is about how I left the cereal cabinet open. <laughs> Still fighting about Starwood points after all these years. <laughs> I mean, they stopped touring and nobody listens to the show anymore, but... <laughs> their their mics haven't been plugged in for years. They just do it out of habit. More and more and more. Dish.
Ben, it's a cross-cultural misunderstanding. That's all it is. I love this. I love that she misread his cue. I love that we would never have noticed it, but she did because she's an alien. I love Kalamini's physicality in this scene. Yeah. He's like trying to climb into the instrument (laughs) panel that they've got open. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know what? A lot like in the bunk bed scene where they take out the wall to place the camera there. Yeah. uh, They they shoot it from inside the bulkhead also on that reverse shot. Yeah. He reassures her by saying, I'm not attracted to you in the slightest. She, uh, and she storms out of the Jeffrey's tube. Yeah. That, that's not a good look, O'Brien. <laughs> Gotta let him down easy. Yeah. So they head out there to shoot the asteroid before it causes an extinction-level event. And uh, unfortunately, it does not go according to plan. Fire! They were supposed to be vaporizing this this rock uniformly and instead they're just shooting holes in it and that's been the danger from the start right you don't want to turn your one big threat into multiple big threats yeah the weapons array is is knocked out there's no way they're going to fix it in time and now there's uh not one but three chunks of asteroid headed toward the wormhole and so the uh the macgyver plan is that cisco is going to captain picard a shuttle truthfully man you want is commander Riker, and uh and fly into the wormhole with the chunks of asteroid and put like a subspace bubble around them to protect the wormhole from the harmful uh materials in the asteroid looks pretty dicey yeah but i liked seeing the uh special shuttlecraft that uh that they have on the defiant yeah, I liked the effect of the comet. Did you know that that uh, wasn't digital? That that was a practical comet? Yeah, it looked great. I mean, yeah. it definitely doesn't look like 1995 digital. That's yeah, for sure. by them. Yeah. So there's a, a fairly involved sequence where, like, the Defiant goes through first, and it's going to, like, hang out on the other side of the wormhole and basically wait for the shuttle to come through and beam everybody out in case... They die or whatever. And uh, as Kira and Cisco pilot this shuttle through, they're doing their best to keep the comets from leaking their nasty uh, materials into the into the wormhole. And they're like, eh, we're doing like a mostly pretty good job, but some of the stuff from the asteroid is, uh, is getting out of the subspace bubble and into the wormhole it's like when you go to take out the garbage and and there's like wet garbage in there and oh it's yeah and there's like one pinprick in the bottom of the bag and it's like too much of a hassle to rebag the entire garbage oh it's just the worst yeah hey speaking of uh cleaning nightmare yeah you know our buddy andrew walsh in seattle i do he has a new podcast called spotless about cleaning because he's obsessed with cleaning up is he yeah he didn't strike me as a person for whom that would be an obsession. Uh, well, apparently it is, and now he has a, an entire podcast about it. Spotless. Give it a try. <laughs> I don't know where you find the time. <laughs> so, yeah, they uh, they make it through the wormhole just fine. They've, uh, they've left a trail of comet debris, but it turns out that this trail of comet debris is the thing that they needed the entire time to make the... Uh, to make the communication system work. I never feel that good about garbage juice. Yeah. 
Like, who knew that garbage juice could improve your home Wi-Fi? <laughs> Maybe the prophecy was true, Ben. Whoa. Maybe it was just misinterpreted. Yeah. It's like uh, these 3,000-year-old words that were couched in metaphor, as Cisco describes them, weren't about the thing that everybody thought they were about. Yeah, I mean, maybe religious prophecy is so metaphorical and malleable that you could make the case for them for any situation. Yeah, almost uh, almost like they were written that way intentionally in the first place. Hmm. 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 O'Brien returns to the airlock, the scene of many terrible moments for him. <laughs> to see Galora off. And they sort of make light of the idea that... Yeah, you know, uh, that third Viper was a member of the Obsidian Order. Boy, is she going to be in trouble. Yeah, because there's that amazing scene where the, like, the weapons array has, has blown out on the Defiant. And they're like, oh, yeah, Dejar is actually a spy, and she definitely sabotaged your shit. Have you ever seen a Cardassian just, like, admit to wrongdoing in that way? No. And not only that, like, the Obsidian Order are the badassiest version of Cardassians. They're they're making it seem like she's the only one that's going to get punished. Right. Like, this mission should have been a failure, and I feel like Ulani and Galora are in big, big trouble once they get home. No one seems to feel that way. I wondered so much about that. Like, they seem brimming with confidence that their science ministry will provide some kind of cover for them and what i want to know is was that an act of amazing bravery turning dejar in or was it incredible naivete i was turning this around in my head a lot until i was uh totally distracted by galora's butt suit when she turns around (laughs) yeah she does have a she does have a very tight pant on good lord were they wearing these the whole time yeah, but they weren't framing them below the waist, so you didn't get to see that But These pants leave nothing to the imagination, Ben. Yeah. I mean, and O'Brien was following Galora in the in the Jeffrey's tube for a while. I mean... <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I mean, like, we talk a lot about times that Star Trek has invented a technology that then became a normal part of everyday life, and this is the yoga pant as a thing that you can just wear around being presaged by Star Trek. Sure is. Who knew that Lululemon started on Cardassia? <laughs> ben, the button on the episode is Cisco and Yara talking prophecies as they walk past the camera. Yeah. The thing that I realized in this moment about Yarka is that he never blinks. That's what makes him so intense in this episode. Whoa. I rewound to a few other Yarka scenes. Unblinking. Shit, dog. Like, once you realize that's the magic trick, like, that's magical intensity. (laughs) Like, you don't have to be hyper intense to look intense. You just have to not blink. I liked that he was willing to cop to his mistake. I wonder if that could lead him to, like, re-enter the religious order or whatever. Yeah, I mean, something that uh, the religious are famous for is changing their minds. (laughs) Good luck with that, Yarka. You really want to do this here now? Okay, okay, let's do it. Do it. Did you like this episode, Adam? I liked getting some different spoons <laughs> in the utensil drawer. <laughs> 
of this episode. I like the seeing the different Cardassians and the different like professional cultures that there are. I kind of like the Star Trek Six vibes of like, what do you do with people who used to be your enemy coming aboard and having to work with them? Like yeah. I thought, I thought that could be improved, but what was there was good and they fun. should have drunk that canar and then had somebody say canar should be illegal <laughs> and somebody else say it is the end of the episode makes me nervous for the future of the show because i like the conflict within cisco and his resistance to being the deity yeah uh, that the bajorans view him as and and that he's growing more and more open to it is a little bit of a turnoff to me how about you I mean, I definitely agree on that point. I think overall, I liked the episode. I liked the themes it explores. I thought there was a lot of fun stuff in it. And my favorite part of the episode is that scene in the Jeffrey's tube with Galora and O'Brien and that moment of relief where they're both like, oh, thank goodness. Like, we both know where the misunderstanding was. It was a, it was like totally a cultural difference. But then the embarrassment kind of taking back over and making it awkward again. <laughs> I thought, I thought it was great. Yeah, that was really well done. The half-life on the embarrassment was so much longer than the half-life on the like intellectual understanding of what had led to the situation. And yeah. I think that that's something that happens all the time in real life. Yeah, I agree. Ben, something that happens all the time on greatest gen is the reading of priority one messages. You want to see what we have? I do. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Ben, I've got a priority one message here of a personal nature. It's from J-Mac. It's for Rico. Should probably be noted that these names are lowercase. Huh. <laughs> message goes like this. Happy anniversary. Here's to many more years of me looking at you the way Kira looks at Odo. What? Oh, wow. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. I'd much rather be looked at the way Odo looks at Kira. Yeah, J-Mac. I mean, look, I don't want to punch up your P1. That's not our job. Our job is to just read them. Like yeah. A, like a newsman reads the teleprompter. Well, it's possible that J-Mac knows about something that we don't yet know about in the future of Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Do you think Mirror Kira is in love with Odo? Oh. Well, Mirror Odo is a splatter on the floor of Terok Nor. So, yeah. I mean, she'd have to be in love with a, a pattern. She'd, she'd really have to cream her jeans every time she saw a Jackson Pollock painting. Kira is really into mists. <laughs> yeah, she... she it's hard to overstate how erotic that uh, Stephen King movie, The Mist, was for her. <laughs> and its pornographic version, Erotic Mist. <laughs> this Ain't The Mist, a triple yeah. X porn parody. <laughs> hey, happy anniversary, J. Mac and Rico. Yeah. Uh, Adam, we have, a, we have a second priority one message here. Hmm. It is from Jim, and it's to Ben and Adam. It goes like this. Just listened to your Mornhammered episode, and I have to say, you two showed some real grit. However, your alternate name for the Hurt Locker, the Diffuser, 
is sadly already taken. <laughs> Google the diffuser to find out about a good buddy of mine who's also a rad dude. Keep up the great pod. Okay, I'm Googling the diffuser. The diffuser is a fictional character and superhero created and originally portrayed by Austin, Texas police detective Jarrett Crippen. <laughs> a good buddy of mine who's also a rad dude. Well, that must be who they're talking about. Yeah, it must be. Huh. Do you think Jarrett Crippen is a friend of DeSoto? He wasn't before. He should be now. <laughs> well, Jarrett, if you are a friend of DeSoto, write in. Let us know. And uh, and uh, tell your, your friend Jim, thank you for getting a P1, because P1s are one of the great ways to support the production of this program. And uh, to do that, you go to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message or 200 for a commercial message. And uh, we really appreciate the folks that do that. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Drunk Shimoda! Yeah, I mean, I I think I think the scene in the Jeffries tube between O'Brien and uh, Galora is so great that it deserves the Shimoda Award. It, it deserves more than our discussion of it. It's more <laughs> meritorious than that. I think Kalamini is so great in the scene. Yeah. And uh, and O'Brien just barely hanging on. He's in this confined space with a stranger. And yet, like, he's not just an engineer here. He's a diplomat. And that is an uncomfortable position for him from a bunch of different angles. He plays it great. <laughs> I I just love the scene. I think it's the most Shimoda-esque of, of scenes in the episode. And I think O'Brien in it embodies that Shimoda spirit that we know and love. What about you? Uh, my Shimoda is a, a deep background Shimoda when... Ulani and Galora get off their transport at the beginning of the episode. Like we see the door of the airlock roll open and they, they come out and way back by their ship, which has like, it's a Cardassian ship. You can tell because it has like a glowing Cardassian logo on it. Um, there is a Bajoran security guy standing back there. And he kind of like, he does a couple of things that make me think, He's like feeling a little bit awkward about being on camera. Like at one point he kind of like disappears behind a wall. He's like walking around a little awkwardly. Like, uh, you, you know, when you, you like see a news broadcast where the, the anchor sits at a desk that's in front of a newsroom and there's like somebody in the, in the background that doesn't realize that they were going to be on camera, like <laughs> photocopying something or whatever. And, uh, and oh Ben, there is a walk by here where where he walks <laughs> from left to right that is fucking absurd. Yeah, like I I was incredibly distracted by this guy this entire scene. I I like rewound the scene 3 times to watch him because he does so many <laughs> weird things. And it also doesn't make any sense that he would be back there because it's a Cardassian ship. Like if it was a Bajoran transport and we'd established that in some way, I guess it would make sense that there would be a Bajoran security guy on it. But it's got a Cardassian logo, so like, what he could possibly be doing back there is a total head scratcher, and it, he keeps popping out throughout the scene. It's so weird and awkward. <laughs> There's something that I've always noticed in award shows is how self-conscious actors are about walking, like yeah. when they walk to the mic or they walk up 
to to receive an award or something mm-hmm. that's so surprising to me like how could an actor of all people not know how to walk <laughs> and this background actor is is doing that yeah it's he's like, like this person is so self-conscious he forgot how normal people walk yeah he's thinking like left foot right yeah. foot left foot right foot You might have heard us talk about Squarespace before and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name, and not a giant social media company's name, with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized to your aesthetic that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24x7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it with Squarespace. Boy, do I love a microdose gummy from Lumi Labs. I'm, uh, I'm running low, so I'm going to head over to microdose.com pretty soon and put in another order. Microdosing is a technique I use to steer my mentals in a preferred direction several times a week. And uh, I just love it because you can really predict what is going to happen and to what degree it is going to happen because these are very low-dose cannabis gummies that uh, give you an entry-level dose that help you feel just the right amount of good. And they've been super loyal as sponsors to Greatest Trek and Greatest Gen, so I hope you will give them a try. Get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code is SCARVES for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. 
The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. What do we have coming up on the next episode? Well, Adam, the next episode is season three, episode 16, Profit Motive. Zek, the Ferengi Negus, pays a visit to Deep Space Nine and moves into Quirk's quarters where he takes on an important project. That is the most record scratch, walking on sunshine, (laughs) movie preview description I've maybe ever heard for this show. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to hear uh, the Amazon description? Yeah. When the Ferengi leader suddenly decides to abolish his race's greedy ways, Quark is determined to find the truth behind his actions. Hmm. A little more self-serious there, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, that will be the next episode, but uh, of course, there is always uh, some amount of risk involved in in uh, advancing to the next episode for us. And uh, here in The Greatest Generation, Deep Space Nine, that has taken on the form of a board game. Do you want to uh, roll, roll our virtual dice and find out if we will be doing this next episode? In a particular way, or in just the regular way? Bennett's Game of Buttholes. Will of the Prophets. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. Our runabout is currently on square 37. We've got a, we've got a wormhole some ways ahead. Let's just see if, uh, let's see if we remain out of danger. Rolled the dice. I have rolled a one. Chula! Did I win? Hardly. Wow. Ben, so inching along. (laughs) We're on square 38, which is just a good old-fashioned episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I love it. Well, nothing old-fashioned about supporting the show that you love, Ben. No, that's that's the newest trend that all the kids are getting involved with. That's the little black dress of, uh, of supporting podcast these days. <laughs> it's a classic. Yeah. Always looks good. Yeah. No matter what the occasion, people who are interested in supporting our show, should it be deserving of such support, <laughs> can go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. And, uh, and those donations help support the production of the show, which is uh, not insignificant and not cheap. No. Yeah. Uh... You know, like, the the thing that they don't tell you when you start a podcast is that if you get hundreds of thousands of downloads a month, it's fucking expensive to serve, so... Right? Like, success is expensive. Yeah. I was not expecting that. So, uh, while all of the uh, downloads are deeply appreciated, like, it really does actually make a big difference for our ability to keep producing the show when we, uh, when we have people supporting us on a monthly basis, because... There's a lot of monthly costs that we now have to defray 
uh, just to keep the thing on the air. So, uh, so thank you. Hey, if you don't have the scratch month to month, a free way to support the show is leaving a nice review in the place where you get podcasts. Or just recommend it to a buddy. Maybe that buddy could use some of that greatest gen magic in their lives. Yeah. Who couldn't? I mean, I probably couldn't, but uh, <laughs> I don't have a choice at this point. You know who a great buddy to the show is? Who's ben, that? It's Adam, it's Adam Ragusea. Yeah, he really is. Uh, he makes all the uh, custom music for the show. He's a, a super talented musician that has somehow taken a liking to us. Uh, and his work uh, for this show is largely based on the, uh, the trail that was blazed by Dirk Materia, who made our original theme music. So thanks to both of them. Yeah, absolutely. We had a we had a friend of the show make the leap to a credits friend of the show not too long ago, Ben. I'm I'm talking about Bill Tilly. Oh yeah, our card daddy. He's yeah. uh he's on Twitter every week making trading cards about the program. Uh, one of my favorite things that uh, that I get to look at every week. I always laugh out loud when I look at Bill Tilly's trading cards. You can follow him at Bill Tilly 1973. Uh, also, J.J. Lendl is making Portfolio Prince-style, like Juan Ortiz-style uh, uh, movie poster prints of, of episodes of Deep Space Nine as as we review them on the show. Like, I kind of think that they should, you know, Rittenhouse or whatever should just hire J.J. Lendl to do those for real. He's so good, and he keeps getting retweeted by, like, the Star Trek writer's room. And, and the pocket. Like, the pocket knows of his existence. The pocket loves his work. I would hire him up. Yeah. If I were in the family of Big Rod. Yeah, I, like, what's up, the pocket? Get off your duff and hire J.J. Lendl. Just throw buckets of money on that guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's how people get paid when you're in the pocket, right? A yeah. bucket of money? Uh-huh. They give you, like, an Odo bucket, but it's full of money instead of goo. Or dry oatmeal. <laughs> In my case. Well, Adam, I think that's just about it. Uh, only other thing to say is uh, go check out all the other shows on MaximumFun.org. And uh, if you want to say hi to us, we're on Twitter. Adam's at Cut for Time. I'm at Benjamin R-A-H-R. And uh, you can use the Greatest Gen hashtag. There's also a bunch of great groups on Facebook and uh, a uh, Reddit sub as well. And uh, all of those are great places to hang out with the friends of DeSoto and take part in uh, all the subgroups that speak to your particular interests. It's, it's not too late to get married before the holidays. Guys. <laughs> there's no better place to find a partner than one of our myriad social media groups. Indeed. We'll leave it there, Ben. Uh, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Another episode of The Greatest Generation, Deep Space Nine, which really contemplates the proper way to clean an ear. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.